This is not your grandma's Bible study. All right, welcome to Not Your Grandma's Bible Study. Today I am not joined by Zach, but I am joined by Dr. Warren Carter, who is my dissertation advisor among many of among his, among his accolades. Um, he yes, is, that's an accolade. It's your highest <laughs> achievement to date, am I right? Um, what is your official title at Phillips Theological Seminary? I'm the Minders Professor of New Testament at Phillips Theological Seminary. And my dissertation advisor. And Jill's <laughs> dissertation advisor. I'll add that to my email now. Um, so Dr. Carter is known for such works as Matthew and Empire, John and Empire, Matthew and the Margins, an upcoming commentary on Mark for the Wisdom Commentary series, uh, among numerous other books and article publications and such. So it is, I'm really, really glad that you said yes to, <laughs> to doing this with me today. So today we're going to talk about the nativity scene in Matthew or the nativity story in Matthew. Um, we're going to cover a lot of material, but we're going to stay within Dr. Carter's sweet spot of empire studies, and um, let's just dive in. So we'll start talking a little bit about this really fun genealogy uh, in Matthew 1, 1 through 16, and my, well, 17. My question to you is, what's the so what about this? genealogy. What do you think it's doing? What do you think it matters? Why should people read it? Yeah, here? yeah. Well, for modern modern readers, you know, if, if we ever started a TV program or a movie or a, or a novel with 17 verses of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, then it would be rejected out of hand yes. and nobody <laughs> would watch it past the first 30 seconds. But in the ancient world, genealogies are really important. Genealogies are a way of defining people, are a way of defining the significance of somebody. Um, basically, the company you keep is who you are. And so Jesus is located at the end of this, um, this genealogy and turns up in verse, um, starts in verse 1, of course, but then he's mentioned again in verse 16 and 17. But he's placed in the context of God's dealings with Israel starting with Abraham and working through th these three big moments in the genealogy, Abraham, David, and then the exile to Babylon and the return from Babylon. So Jesus is associated with these big, big characters and big events. And some maybe not so... Important. Some not so important. Yeah. And some... Dubious? Dubious, that's, a good, that's the word. That's the word I'm looking for. Dubious characters? Yeah, so that not everyone here is virtuous and wonderful and righteous and faithful and all those things. So with Abraham, we have a promise to Abraham that through Abraham God will bless all the peoples of the earth. Through David as king, we have this promise that the king will, be, or this commission, that the king will be a representative of God's good purposes and good reign on planet Earth, and there'll be justice and abundance for all. But of course, David has a few other problems, <laughs> uh, one of whom is actually mentioned in the, in the genealogy, 
that he has this fling with the wife of Uriah. She's not actually named Bathsheba in the genealogy, but that's who we're talking about. Um, and he not only has an affair with her, but he manages to get her, her uh, husband Uriah killed in battle. We'll have to do um, another true crime yeah, podcast. Yeah, there's one. a true crimes <laughs> one. Um, so uh, we also get a reference to the character Manasseh, who has to be the baddest um, king of the whole lot. Um, he's notoriously the wicked king in the, in, the, in the lists of kings. So there are all sorts of unlikely people here. Now with Manasseh, there is the non-canonical prayer of Manasseh yeah. text is mm-hmm. that associ- is that the same Manasseh yeah. or are there like two traditions no, around him well there are, yeah there's a, there's actually in the account of the kings in first and second kings Manasseh is bad 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 in chronicles uh, where the same material is covered, but from a slightly different perspective, Manasseh gets something of a makeover mm. and he is bad, but then he repents and prays and God forgives him and it's all okay. But Chronicles doesn't doesn't tell us what he prays when he repents. So if you look in a contemporary Bible in the Apocrypha, you'll find a, a short prayer called the Prayer of Manasseh. Which is a very lovely prayer. It's a lovely prayer, which the tradition has filled in. So there was a gap in, in Chronicles, and when there's a gap in the tradition, it gets filled in in some way. And so somehow someone has supplied um, a possible prayer that Manasseh prays in terms of, of his repentance. So he gets a makeover through the tradition. Interesting. Do you think Matthew, or the author of Matthew, is thinking more along the lines of the made-over Manasseh? Or? No, I think he's probably thinking more in terms of the bad, bad, bad Manasseh. <laughs> right. um, that despite this, this prevalence of human sinfulness in the midst of it and through it all, um, God is at work. Um, and I think that's the sort of the big theological claim that God is being faithful to God's purposes through all these different types of people. Um, some very noble and virtuous and righteous and others who are just dirtbags. Um, <laughs> but through it all, God is doing God's thing. Um, there's another thing that we should talk about, and that is the genealogy is mostly male. Mm-hmm. Mostly not exclusively. male, but not exclusively. So it's mostly male because it comes from a patriarchal society where um, where the inheritance from a father is the most important thing about a person's identity. But what also happens in this genealogy is that we have um, several women who who are mentioned along the way. So if you look in verse 3, we get a reference to Tamar. Uh, We also get a reference to Ruth in verse Mm -hmm. 5. We get a reference to the wife of Uriah at the end of verse 6. And, of course, we get a reference to Mary at the end of um, verses 16 and 17. I left out Rahab. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, I thought Rahab was Yeah, we have Rahab here here as well. Um, And the big question that interpreters have wrestled with for a long, long time is what are these women doing here? Because mm-hmm. it's not it's not common for women to be in a genealogy. It's not unique, but it's not common because descent through the male line is the is the thing that is most important. So over the over the centuries we've had a bunch of different suggestions. 
um, as to what they're doing here. What's the most ridiculous suggestion? Oh, the most ridiculous suggestion, which was very common in the, it's, it's a, in the early church, was that the women are here because they're sinners. Uh, yes. These sinful women. Sinful women and righteous men, which, of course, is nonsense yeah. when you have people like David and Manasseh mm-hmm. um, as males in the, in the line. Um, so as though women have any monopoly on sinfulness, and that's Judah. ridiculous. Because uh, when Tamar yeah. ends up deceiving him, he responds with, you're the more righteous yes. one, essentially. I mean, he, yeah. he, pre- or he calls her deception righteousness. Right. So this is, this is one of the ways of reading their presence, that in the interactions um, with the corresponding male, it's actually the women who are more righteous. It's the women who are more faithful to the divine purposes uh, than the men. So that's one way of, of thinking about it. Um, another way of, of thinking about it is that um, all these relationships that the women are in, involved in are in some ways irregular in a patriarchal world. Mm-hmm. So um, Tamar presents herself as a prostitute in order to make Judah be faithful. Then we have um, Rahab, who is a prostitute, but she welcomes the spies into the city and guards them and protects them and furthers God's purposes. So she's very righteous. The wife of Uriah, um, Bathsheba, um, is probably more taken advantage of than than anything else. Mary, of course, is um, a betrothed virgin who is pregnant, which, you know, there are several strikes against her in terms of popular perceptions. Oh, and Ruth. And, And Ruth throws herself into the protection of another woman, Naomi, first of all, and then might be understood to, to be um, seductress for... Um, the infamous threshing floor? Yeah, the infamous threshing floor for, for Boaz. But she, she primarily gives her allegiance to Naomi mm-hmm. uh, rather than to another male. So there are irregular relationships around these women. Um, in a patriarchal world that sort of destabilizes that, that, that normative patriarchal male power uh, relationship. So there's a bunch of interesting, interesting mix there. So that's the quick and fast genealogy. Um, but it is, it's, if you just are reading it, it's easy to only care about the names you recognize and not... <laughs> It's easy just to gloss over yeah, the it, whole thing. Yeah, it's also easy just get, to skip it. Get glassy-eyed <laughs> about it, you know. Yeah, Jesus had some ancestors, big yeah. look, uh, we all do. Right, but. right. But every name on the list tells a story. Mm-hmm. Every name evokes a story, just as in our own time, if you, if you name, you know, somebody who's a famous person, then we all have impressions yeah. in our heads as to the significance of that person. Well, now everybody that hears your name that didn't know you before is going to be like, oh, that's Jill's dissertation advisor. Jill's dissertation advisor. <laughs> See, that's, that's the most important thing now. Yes, yes. yes. Most important. Yeah. Um, Peak of your career. There you go. <laughs> and what's interesting about some of these names is that we don't even know now who they were. Right. They've, they've just disappeared into the sands of time somewhere, and we just have a name and nothing to go with them. And yet others, like Abraham and Isaac and David and... These, these folks we, we know a lot about from, um, from the tradition. Um, there's another thing we should mention, that 
we've got a whole bunch of fancy footwork going on here okay. in this genealogy. Well, in terms of like time? Partly in terms of time, but if you look in verse 17, <laughs> um, the, the writer of the gospel tells us that all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ were 14. So we've got a, got a fixation here with the number 14. Mm -hmm. um, and if you go back through the genealogy, then the first two parts, Abraham to David and David to the exile, yes, we do have 14, but in the third one, we actually only have 13. So we have a miscalculation there. But to get the number of 14 most of the way through, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's left out. There right. are numerous generations that are left out. It's very selective. You know, so, uh, somebody might have four or five kids, but only one is named here, only one is selected. And so folks have wondered, what's the obsession with the number 14? And there have been several suggestions. Uh, one is that um, around the time that this is written, that some Jewish texts like to organize time according to certain numbers as a way of showing divine providence at mm -hmm. work or a divine planning that's being worked out. So we have folks who, who map out 10 generations, mm -hmm. for example, or seven generations as a way of showing that divine planning. There's a pattern. There's a pattern to it's it. It's not random. Yeah, there's a pattern to it. And this is a way of talking about God working out what God is doing. The most common explanation is, is this one, that if you take the name David in Hebrew, Hebrew letters also function as numbers. Hebrew letters have numerical values. So if you count the consonants in the name David, because vowels don't matter so much in Hebrew, right. but if you count the, the numerical value of the consonants, then the D in Hebrew has a numerical value of four, okay. and the V has a numerical value of six, and the final D has a numerical value of four. So we're 14. And if you're playing along at home. <laughs> you're playing the home game. <laughs> then you got 14. <laughs> and so some folks have suggested that the organization of the genealogy into three lots of 14 is a way of emphasizing the connection between Jesus and David. David as king is appointed or anointed king to represent God's good purposes of justice in the world. And Jesus, as a descendant of David, gets the same task to manifest the kingdom or the empire, the reign, the rule of God in his actions. So the, the numerology thing... Um, the numbers. Uh, the numbers. Um, I've also heard that as an explanation of making sense of the 666 in Revelation as maybe Nero... Um, yes. So my question is then, is how common would that have been, or is that sort of because it's not common in no. our society? Of right. Course. No, it, no, if we somebody don't do comes that. to me and says Jesus's name means this many numbers, I'd be like, you are a lunatic. <laughs> so <laughs> um, let me show you where the Illuminati hang out. Right. Um, but was this really a common thing, or is it more of? Well, it's it seems yeah, it's it seems to be um, at least a common enough phenomenon for people to be able to recognize okay. it and to use it. Whether it's a it's an everyday phenomenon, I just don't know. Okay. But it's common enough for for people to recognize. And you use the yep. example of Nero in Revelation six six six. So 
when you have the number 14 repeated in this way, um, I think it's drawing attention to it, and I think that's kind of the way of that's saying, dear reader, do notice okay. um, that it's 14, and so there's some significance uh, to it. Yeah. Interesting. I did not know the 14 thing. I've never heard that before. Okay, so well, moving past the genealogy then, moving into the birth announcement to Mary, or Joseph, rather. Joseph, yeah. So, which I think this might be a good moment to talk about the difference between what's going on in Matthew and what's going on in Luke, because mm-hmm. it's really easy to jumble the narratives together. Right, yeah. In part because we're so often presented with them yeah. together as a harmonized story. Sunday and, school pageants yes. and bathrobes <laughs> and little lambs and all those things. Angels, people who, who one would never think of being an angel get to play angels. Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown. <laughs> so, Christmas cards, all those things. Yeah. yeah. So we actually have two quite distinct mm. telling of the stories in Matthew and Luke. And in Matthew, so we start with this genealogy, then we have um, a whole emphasis on the conception with an angel mm-hmm. turning up to Joseph. Right. Then Jesus gets born and we have the presence of the so-called wise men, um, the magi following the star. We have Herod having um, a violent fit, killing the infants of Bethlehem. Herod. Seriously overreacting. Yeah, we we, we should talk about about yeah, his reaction. We should reaction. talk about his reaction. But, but, it's, I mean, it's maybe not quite the overreaction. No, it's, the story it, is not presenting it that way. It's, yeah, no, it has some has some real important political dimensions to it. But let's let's just do the Matthew and Luke thing first of all. In Luke, we have a much greater emphasis in the first part of Luke's story on two parallel events. So one is the conception and then the birth of John the Baptist, Mm -hmm. and that runs parallel with the conception and the birth of Jesus. And if you look in Luke chapter 1, you actually see that these are alternating blocks of narrative. Mm -hmm. So it's a wee bit like watching a soap on TV or Mm -hmm. something like that. You you get contrasting and alternating scenes. But the really important thing that is happening in Luke chapter 1 is the writer of the gospel is emphasizing that when God says something is going to happen, it happens, that God is trustworthy, that uh, the readers of the gospel can be assured of that. So when the angel turns up and says to Zechariah, who's the father of, of John the Baptist, that you know, Zechariah, you and, and your wife Elizabeth are going to have a baby, and um, Zechariah says, well, that's not going to happen because we're far too old for any of that. <laughs> um, nevertheless, the angel, as the messenger of God, has announced it. And sure enough, Elizabeth conceives. And sure enough, she gives birth so that what God says happens. And likewise, the angel turns up to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to have a baby. And Mary says, well, no, that's not going to happen because something else would have to happen first, and that hasn't happened, so that's not going to take place. But then she is pregnant, and then she has a baby. So this emphasis in chapter 1 that God's declaration, God's word, what God says is trustworthy, is reliable, can be, can be relied on, and it's, to use a big theological word, it's efficacious, it comes into being. It affects what it says it's going to do. Just like in the creation story, you know, God said, let there be light, and there was. 
Um, it's the same sort of idea. We don't have any of that in Matthew in terms of any attention to the origins of John the Baptist. Um, in Matthew, the focus is on Joseph, who's from the line of David. Uh, the focus is not on Mary, um, unlike, unlike Luke. And then instead of Matthew's so-called magi or wise men in Luke, we have the shepherds um, who go to Bethlehem and then the um, chorus of angels appears and they produce the first Christmas cantata. Yeah. Do not be afraid. Joy yeah. to the world. Joy to the world. And, and that's the beginning of a tradition that sometimes has worked well for us and sometimes has not, right. the first Christmas cantata. But we don't have shepherds in Matthew. We don't have magi or wise men in, in Luke. So they're not all together in the barn. Right, so they're not... <laughs> I, know, I know Christmas cards and Christmas pageant like to stuff them all together, but the different gospel writers are doing different things. They have different emphases in telling the story in different ways. So the focus on Joseph here in Matthew is more about continuing to stress that Davidic line right. for Matthew. Right, he's, the, he's of the line of David. He's addressed by the angel as son of David. And so when David, uh, when, sorry, when Joseph names Jesus, that naming is a way of recognizing that he too belongs to the line of David. And so that's a way of um, making sure that he's a representative of, of the kingly responsibilities that were given to, to David. And this, that whole son of David piece, as we've talked about, is all building through that genealogy in that Joseph named this child. Right. And in Luke... It's no genealogy. It's just, and it's more the efficaciousness of God's word. Right, and and the angel tells Mary what um, Jesus is to be about, and and so that's what's going to happen as well. So all of this is framing the subsequent story of what Jesus does mm -hmm. as an adult, and that's really important here in Matthew because when when the angel announces to Joseph that Mary's going to have a baby and by the time Joseph's got over his fright and said, no, 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 we're just betrothed, we're not married yet. Um, the angel then says to Joseph, so you don't need to go buy a baby book because we've got names yeah. for you. We've already decided yeah, this. Yeah, we've already decided this. So you're going to call him first of all Jesus and then you're going to call him Emmanuel. And the choice of those names are not accidental. No. The names are Jesus' commission, right? Mm -hmm. The names are Jesus' job description. You'll call him Jesus, for he will save my people, his people from their sins. You'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So even before Jesus is born, he's got his life's work yeah. given to him. This is his life's mission. This is his whole agenda. He is to manifest, to display God's saving presence among people. That's why he's named in this way. You know, there's no point calling him Jim or Bob or anything like that because the <laughs> names carry um, what he is to do as, as God's agent. And you don't have the guesswork like we do in Luke with John. Right. His father's been struck where right. he can't speak. Right. It's almost like they have to play a guessing game until they get it. And he's like, ding, 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 ding. Yep. You got to, it. And he has to write it down. And once he's written it down faithfully, he's allowed to talk again. Yeah. Yeah, big relief. <laughs> um, so, okay, so the um, the allusion or the citation here to the look the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall name him Emmanuel is 
From Isaiah, correct? Right. Okay, thank you. From I was, Isaiah. I was like, I've been in Matthew so long, I'm like, do there I remember go. any other part of this yes, Bible? there you go. Um, and so that is definitely Matthew reading Isaiah with his Jesus glasses on. Right. So in, in Isaiah, the verse in chapter uh, 7, verse 14, is not in for Isaiah, in the time of Isaiah, about Jesus. Right. So it's not a sort of a hidden meaning about Jesus that nobody understood for so many centuries, seven or eight centuries, and then suddenly, whoosh, bang, Jesus comes along, so now we can understand it. Thank God somebody kept writing that thing right. down over the years. And for, for 800 years, people have puzzled about it, and then suddenly, now we get it. it it's not like that at all. In, if you read the passage in Isaiah 6 and 7, then we've got troubles for Judah, the country of Judah, from uh, Syria and, and um, Israel to the north. Um, they're going to invade the country. And King Ahaz is worried. He doesn't know what to do. Um, and he thinks he should make an alliance with the Egyptians or maybe he should make an alliance with the Assyrians. He doesn't know what to do. God says, don't make any alliances, just trust me and it'll be okay. And here's a sign that it'll be okay that a young woman will conceive um, a child. You'll call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So the, the notion of, of this young woman who's going to conceive a child is an indication that there's going to be a next generation. They're not going to be wiped out. They're not going to be defeated and obliterated. There is going to be a next generation. And probably we're talking about Hezekiah, who's going to be the next king. Um, that the royal line will continue. So Matthew reads this with Jesus' glasses on in a context of Roman power to understand this text to, in relation to Jesus to indicate that now Jesus will manifest God's purposes in the midst of Roman power and Roman power won't have the final word. So the, the translation of virgin hmm. is... Parthenos, so right. which means virgin, but also right. just young maiden, assuming well, virginity, right? What we have is that in the Hebrew Bible, the, the word that is used simply refers to a young woman with nothing, no overtones of her um, sexual experience or no sexual experience, simply a young woman. Okay. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew text which is called the Septuagint. Sometimes you'll see it written as LXX, which always reminds me of the Roman soldiers <laughs> counting off in the life of Brian or whatever. <laughs> but anyway, the LXX or the Septuagint, when the verse is translated from Hebrew into Greek, the Greek text uses the word parthenos, which does refer to the sexual um, non-experience of the young woman. So here in Matthew, Matthew is quoting Isaiah 7.14 from the Septuagint, not from the Hebrew Bible. Okay. Right? Right. And that matters for Matthew because if you read through this whole section four times, we're told that this conception of Jesus, Mary's conception of Jesus, is the action of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Or to put it, to rule out the other possibility, um, before they slept together, before they had sex. 
So this is, this is a narrative way of saying this is God's grace at work. This is God's initiative. God is getting this whole thing going. God is starting this. This is God's action, right? So Paul might say simply, by grace, all of this is happening. Mm-hmm. Matthew does theology in a different way and tells the story. That is, the Holy Spirit is responsible for, for this pregnancy. So one of the things in another episode that Zach and I recorded on, we talked about just sort of a general discussion around concept of inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible. And one of the things that we talked about was what's more inerrant, the translation where we're making choices or the original language. But this particular verse complicates things even more because the source text is Hebrew, then it gets translated with a choice into Greek. Into Greek. And it's, and then that becomes the theological foundation for, right. and I mean, something that it matters today right. to so many people. Right. It's the and, and Matthew has an option at this point, right? It's yeah. like the buffet bar. Yeah. Uh, the, the writer of the gospel can choose either Hebrew, the young woman, or can choose Greek, the virgin. And he chose virgin. And chooses virgin because he's making the point that um, this is the action of God through the Holy Spirit. So there's a theological agenda that's being played out at this point. It's a narrative yeah. way of saying this is God's doing. And it really, it just, it muddles that whole, whole concept of this inerrant, infallible. I mean, we're seeing here a very clear choice by right. this author being made. Right. So it's not just as, it's not as simple as saying he's just quoting the Bible. Yeah. Well, which Bible is he quoting, and why is he quoting the the Greek version here? So this is a great little example of that. So, yeah, yeah, it's a very important one. And then Jesus, we we talked about you know Emmanuel being God with us, but Jesus is is Joshua, right? And that's recalling a lot of I mean the early conquest narratives yes. and and things like that. And I think that's really important for Jesus's portrayal sort of, as Maziel might say, taking back the land. Right. Um, Yeah. Well, I think that's really important because, remember, the gospel is written late in the first century, 80s or 90s. And the big, big whoop-de-doo event late in the first century was the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. And this event, this destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 by the Romans, was understood widely by a number of Jewish groups, including in Matthew's gospel, as punishment on the people for their sins. This, right. is, this is a common understanding, especially from the book of Deuteronomy, that when the people are faithful, God blesses them. When the people are deemed to be unfaithful, God punishes mm-hmm. them. And one of the ways of punishing them is to use imperial powers, like the Assyrians and the Babylonians who were referred to in the genealogy. And now in the year 70, the Romans who are understood to be agents of God's punishment, right? So when Jesus is named Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. We've got a very clear context in which those sins are understood. Mm -hmm. It's not just general old sins, Mm -hmm. but sins that were punished in the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70, particularly... Um, the the rejection of God's purposes by the Jerusalem leaders. And so the gospel tells the story of Jesus as a way of saving from that punishment that has been carried out um, in the the events of the year 70. 
which in the end is going to mean the overthrow of the Roman Empire as far as the gospel is concerned. Right. So all of that evokes Joshua, yeah. right? And Joshua leading the people into the land, um, overcoming all the enemies, establishing God's purposes, all those sorts of things. Um, so we sort of have a rerun of the Joshua story. Right. This is the Joshua story, verse 2. 2.0. 2.0. Okay, so that's chapter 1 in a nutshell um, of Matthew and the beginning of this nativity scene. So Dr. Carter has graciously decided to record two episodes with us so that we can have him on our next episode where we will dive into Matthew chapter 2. So for now, that's the end of this episode. We'll see you next time.